conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined once again by Tim Matthews. It has been a minute, Tim, but today we're going to talk about Vertigo, which is a Hitchcock movie, and we have been talking a little back and forth about some of my recent movie-watching adventures because I've been doing a lot of older movies lately, but how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I've been I've been doing the, yeah, been doing the same, just finding all all sorts of movies that, especially in like the, you know, giant movie canon that is when I think about, oh, that's kind of crazy that I haven't watched that already and trying to fill in those gaps. So just been hanging and watching movies after movies after movie. Yeah, I've been getting into movies more lately instead of watching a bunch of TV shows, which was something I did a lot of. Like I would watch so many TV shows in a given week and it was just getting to be too much to be that invested in that many different stories for like six seasons. So I'm just like, you know what? Movies are nice. You're done (laughs) in about two hours, give or take. And unless it's like Marvel or DC, you don't really have to keep going with anything in particular to get the full story. So that's been nice, but I've been filling in a lot of gaps. And I actually had bought a Hitchcock box set, I want to say like two or three Black Fridays ago. And I had seen a few of the movies that were included in it, like Psycho, I think is in it and North by Northwest. And I had already seen those and maybe one or two others. But I finally was just like staring at my movie collection and was like, I need to start watching some of these things. And the thing is, like a lot of the Hitchcock stuff is not streaming as well. So I was like, okay, I'm glad I bought the box set because like half of the movies are not actually streaming anywhere, at least not on the streaming services that I have. So when I was asking you to do an episode, we were like, all right, we'll do a Hitchcock or a Bond because I have box sets for both (laughs) of those. And we landed on Vertigo mostly because I was like, all right, I would prefer to do something I hadn't seen yet just so I could, you know, cross another one off the list, honestly, kind of selfishly. And yeah, definitely. This is one that is obviously one of his big ones that isn't, you know, Psycho or The Birds. And it felt like it was a huge blind spot for me. And I did not really read up on it going into it. So I had no idea what to expect. But I want to know a little about like what your relationship with Vertigo and Hitchcock in general has been. Uh, Vertigo, I had had never watched until this morning, actually. Okay. I had a, a decent amount of random knowledge about it because going through film school, it was obviously used as tons of incredible examples on how to use colors, framing, you know, suspense, uh, twists, just uh, just everything that falls into this movie. It you know it's iconic. So um, so over the years, I've had just bits and bits of you know studying different scenes, but thankfully. Um, it's been years since I was in film school. I was a much, much younger man. Uh, and so I was able to go into this and as certain things happen, I'm like, oh, okay, I kind of remember like looking at these different scenes, but I could not for the life of me remember, remember knowing the twist. So I was able to still enjoy it on 
on a pretty fresh uh, level. So that was really fun being able to do that. And so I'm, I'm right there with you. This was a, a huge blind spot for me. Um, uh, it, it just recently was uh, bumped off the number one of the sight and sound list, I believe. Yeah. You know, it's obviously, you know, super, super high, highly regarded, um, even though when it first came out, it was not. Um, but I, I feel like so many of the great films of all time that we look back at when you look at how they were received when they first came out. Um, a lot of times not so great and not great box office, but, uh, for Hitchcock, I definitely, it's, it's just been a sporadic number of, of different ones that I've seen over the years. Um, big fan of, um, you know, big fan of psycho. I'd seen the birds probably too young. (laughs) And then I've seen a number of just like different random ones. Just that particular tone, I just I've I've loved how he you know crafts uh, crafts a story and, and how how he's able to work with your expectations and then twist them uh, around like it's you know he's obviously iconic, but I will say like outside of uh, of a handful of um, of his big ones um, and then like I have some of those like Hitchcock presents books um they're mm-hmm. they're all like the old paperbacks a lot of them were my dad's um, so that's where some of my some of my experience with Hitchcock is, but I also have a lot of blind spots with, with him. And it, it's kind of, I feel like he's one of those directors that I was like, yes, he is incredibly highly regarded. And I know that his, that his films are fantastic and I will get to them. And then, so I'm, I'm hoping uh, probably, I guess, you know, especially after watching Vertigo, I think going into 2023, I'm going to work on knocking out a lot more of, a lot more of those gaps. I have a friend who's a huge fan of Hitchcock and we've talked a ton of times about just having like different movie nights and doing double features. So, um, so I'm looking forward to doing those. Yeah. I actually have one of those Alfred Hitchcock presents kind of books. I think the one I have is like stories best read with the door unlocked or something (laughs) along those lines. And there are a lot of those kind of books, like way more than I realized because I was recently on thrift books or something and just came across a bunch of them. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize there were this many of those kinds of books. Oh yeah. So the one I have is Alfred Hitchcock presents stories to be read with the door locked, not unlocked. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah. And Vertigo is actually based on a book but it is in French and I had my friend Becky send me like the pronunciation of it and then I was like I'm not even gonna try (laughs) to say that on the podcast I was reading a little about that earlier yeah it basically translates to from among the dead this is according to Wikipedia so take that with a grain of salt probably and it's a mystery novel from 1954 so this was adapted a few years later and it's just one of those things that I also didn't realize was an adaptation of a book either going into it. So this whole thing is just me finding out a bunch of interesting little tidbits and they shot it on location, which I think is pretty cool because the Bay Area is definitely like a much different feel than Hollywood or, you know, being on a back lot somewhere and Mission San Juan Batista 
it's just one of those things where you kind of have these unique settings that are not necessarily impossible to recreate, but it's always better when you can film on location, obviously. And yeah, this initially replaced Citizen Kane on the sight and sound list as the top film. And like you said, it just got... Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, Just got replaced this year. So I didn't even really pay attention to the site and sound list until recently when a bunch of my friends started talking about it and I was like oh this is a thing so yeah it was ramping up like everyone started talking about because it, it was like oh the the year's coming and I remember in 2012 when the list came out but I I all for all sense and purposes had forgotten about it the the same until until now and wasn't really paying attention to the fact that like it's every 10 years and but it I'd, I'd been seeing in the in the weeks pre- preceding it everyone be getting hyped about oh what's going to be on the list and i was like what what the heck what is this because i'm i I was initially thinking i'm like oh like the afi top 100 like that's the one that i'm more that i was more familiar with yeah and to dive into the cast a little bit i mean the main two are jimmy stewart and kim novak and jimmy stewart is i think a little older than i expected in this and just to see him, you know, sort of going a little gray and like the age difference between him and Kim Novak in the movie. I was like, oh, this is interesting because I wasn't expecting it to sort of almost be Jimmy Stewart playing kind of a creep, honestly, (laughs) (laughs) for like a good chunk of the movie too. And I was just like, man, they really made it. So his character was being super creepy at times. (laughs) It was done very effectively throughout the throughout the movie that it was like all right he's you know he's he's following her he's following her around and everything and i get it he's being like a private eye and so there was like this feeling of like this is really creepy he's stalking her but i also get he's a private eye so it's like his job and so i i was like but i'm assuming it's gonna go in a different direction he's not just gonna end up remaining a just a cop in it and and the movie itself like has such a a dreamlike feel to it so they're you know it's really slow paced um but not in a bad way like it's 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 like a really effective slow burn as you as you watch his his character you know develop down this down this path yeah and when you dive into like you were saying, the fact that he is basically a PI in this. He's a retired cop, and he is going through this trauma of the fellow cop who tried to help save him ended up falling to his death. And we find out that he has vertigo, hence the title of the movie. And it's this thing where this seemingly friend of his, I guess we'll call him an acquaintance for now, because... It's really hard to tell if they were actually friends or not, but you have Gavin Elster, played by Tom Helmore, and he basically wants him to follow his wife because he thinks his wife is in danger. And it turns out that his wife is only in danger because of him. (laughs) And that it's not even his wife. And that was the thing that I definitely did not see coming with this because I was like okay, all of this tracks so far that his wife might be in danger because of reasons that he doesn't really very clearly explain, but it's like, okay, whatever, he'll do this favor for this guy that he clearly has known at least for a little while. And 
you slowly see Scotty start to fall in love with Madeline. And you have this moment in the movie where you think they're going to just go off and live their life without Gavin in it. And instead, Madeline just bolts off into the bell tower at the mission and she runs up the stairs. And the the one thing that bothered me about this, but I was willing to overlook it, was the fact that he couldn't catch up to her before she even like made it too high up. I was like, this woman is in heels running up some stairs <laughs> and you, sir, could not catch her. Come on. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that there's definitely a, uh, a level of um, uh, suspension of disbelief there. I couldn't believe at this point in the movie, like as, yeah, as we're watching this, this relationship between them uh, build. And so you're thinking, okay, well, this is his supposed friend's wife and they're, you know, they're getting together somewhere down the line. I'm thinking, all right, well, the friend's going to find out. He's not going to be happy about it. And, for her to to then go up the bell tower and of course we see the introduction of the fantastic dolly zoom or the or the vertigo effect or the jaws shot it would yeah obviously wasn't the jaw shot yet but um then for her to go up and then you hear her scream and she falls i hit my remote and i see that there's like 50 minutes left and i was like wait what i was like <laughs> <laughs> this this feels like a really climactic moment, and I was not expecting to only be halfway through the movie at this point. Yeah, because it's what? It's like two hours and eight minutes or something yeah. like that. It's a little over two hours, so you still have a good chunk of the movie left. And I don't even think the scream registered in my head at that point in time. Like, it was just one of those things where you assume she has just been taken over again and you know kind of blacks out and then kind of like comes to while she's falling and that explains the scream but it takes a while for them to sort of unravel the whole thing after that obviously with 50 minutes left by that point and I really like how they took their time with that and they let Scotty sort of go through the motions of him initially believing what we believed and then he slowly starts to figure it out you know poor midge in this she's just sort of cast aside she has some great lines though like her line delivery was pretty comedic and i think that helps a lot with some of those tense moments especially when scotty's very clearly like in his own head trying to figure things out and she's just there which that is one other thing I never understood. He just like lets himself into her apartment all the time. And I was like, this is kind of odd, but okay. Yeah. Cause it, whenever, like at first when, when he's in there, it, it feels like we're first in, introduced to her until the scene plays out and you realize like they're, they're friends and stuff. I'm thinking she's some type of therapist or doctor. Um, even though she's, you know, weirdly standing there painting as he's talking. But um, Art therapy is a thing. That's true. That is true. But he's sitting there talking about his recovery. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I guess she's, I guess she's some kind of doctor. But it's like, no, they're old friends. They used, they were engaged for three weeks, apparently. And 
they clearly have this friendship and this playful dynamic. And when his obsession starts to lock in as he's, you know, doing his job as a private eye, you know, she gets, you know, further and further cast aside. And then the only time he like brings her in is when he needs, uh, you know, needs information and they go to like the bookstore and stuff. Um, but yeah, she has some fantastic line deliveries and like what does she call him? Like Johnny boy, Johnny O, I think Johnny O. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Just like, Ooh, Johnny O. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a moment where she pulls up in the car. That was so good. (laughs) And you know, you have Madeline walking out of Scotty's apartment and she's just kind of like, Oh, Johnny O, what what have you done? Kind of thing. Yeah. Like, she she's married (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it was just moments like that that i think kind of broke up a lot of that tension because everything was so intense too between scotty and madeline throughout the whole movie and even when we then see her as judy this is when things got really wild for me with as far as you know like scotty's personality yeah because he just got so creepy and controlling and even when they're at this you know department store or whatever it's probably not a department store it looked a little higher end than that but where they try on the clothes for you apparently (laughs) yeah and you have the woman who's like oh he knows what he wants (laughs) it's just like like, yeah a little too much (laughs) he's being super controlling and just like the way he would grab at that point judy just like by the arms and like maneuver her where he wanted her to go i was like this is way too intense right now definitely it's and because after every after everything happens like when he first believes that she's that she's dead and he's like he's essentially like catatonic um as he you know has to as he goes through you know therapy to just kind of like get get himself just even just back into the world and then uh, the you see him out on the street and then he goes into the restaurant and he thinks he sees her then it turns out it's not her. And that, I mean, that the shot of that was incredible. There's a moment when she gets up from the table and I was like, I was like, Oh my God. I was like, wait, is she really alive? And then the camera like flips and it's somebody else. I'm like, Oh no, he's just going a little nuts thinking he's seeing her everywhere. So then when he sees Judy and the face doesn't change throughout this whole time, I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, there's gotta be something with her. And could it really be her but is it somebody else and then he's just projecting all this obsession and very scary a toxic portrayal as it's getting further and further and then in the back of my mind I'm still I'm also trying to think I'm like well with the whole thing with Madeline they played with this whole thing that she was you know being overtaken by the the, the old spirit of this woman and so and so then there's in the back of my mind I'm like are we still playing with that or like, is there still a little bit of this, uh, a little bit of this mystical aspect to it or, and then as, as it goes on, you, you realize like none of, none of the mystical aspects are true. And this guy is just losing his mind. And then when you have the moment where she puts the necklace on and clearly he starts to, to realize something. But when I think, when I'm thinking back to the movie, I, I'm trying to think of like, how soon did he know? Yeah. And was there a level of, was he pushing this as hard 
because he just naturally was super obsessive or and and you know went through kind of these double traumas in, in this movie and is has has he just lost his mind at this point or did he start to figure it out and just kept pushing and pushing until she would break and I, I, I was trying to think of if there was some level of that yeah I kind of felt like it was when they were trying on all of the gray suits and he was like, no, it needs to specifically be this one. And I think it's because he wanted to see if it fit her like the exact same way it had fit Madeline. And then when she had gone to the salon to get her hair dyed, and came back and it wasn't styled the right way. It feels like that was kind of just the catalyst for him being like, I know this thing and I am going to find a way to basically figure out that I am right one way or another. And then it was the necklace that I feel like just convinced him completely that yes i'm right this is the same person (laughs) yeah there's there's no way that you have that necklace that all right you look like her if we changed your hair you really really look like her you have the same measurements you're you're able to put on this perfect portrayal of her personality i was reading reading about how she so applauded to essentially play three different roles in this movie she plays madeline she plays judy but there's also judy portraying projecting what he wants madeline to be and uh and these different subtleties that she's able to put in throughout her performance but you know it's there's there's no level of you know he can figure out there's no level of this many coincidences of this person just being exactly able to portray like who i believe and then have this necklace and then and then of course taking her up the the bell tower i did not expect the movie to end there (laughs) (laughs) yeah what an ending too and i feel like you also have that element of whether or not she wanted him to find out because we have that scene where she's writing a letter to him being like oh i was hoping you would find me and i think she genuinely wanted him to just like her as Judy at that moment in time, which is why she tore up, crumpled up the letter and got rid of it because she was playing Madeline. She was not Madeline. She was pretending to be this guy's wife. Right. So that wasn't who she really was. No. She said, don't you like me? Yeah. And she goes back and forth with him and is like, well, that's not very complimentary. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you have this struggle with her character where she wants to be seen as herself, not as this person she was paid to pretend to be right. that he fell in love with. And left with her own trauma of being a murder accomplice. <laughs> yeah. And we find out that, you know, the real Madeline, her neck was already broken and he just, threw her off the bell tower to make it look like it was a suicide. And you have this sequence of events where he knew because of Scotty's vertigo that he probably would feel guilty, wouldn't stick around. And he doesn't pay any sort of price for that, you know, in the legal sense. 
he just goes through all of this trauma all over again. And honestly, considering how little we even see of Gavin Elster in this, he is literally the biggest villain of this story, hands down. And he's maybe in like, I don't know if he's even in like 15 minutes of the movie total. Absolutely. Yeah, he just, he he looms over the entire thing without without being on screen almost at all. It's not like he just set up for him to follow. Like you initially think, oh, he's just having him follow his wife. And then you're like, oh, mate, I guess, you know, he would naturally be distraught, but he's not going to, he's not going to blame his, his friend. But even that, it was just kind of like the way that scene played out. You're like, something's just not right here. This guy just seems oddly calm about the fact that his wife committed suicide. Yeah. And that his friend didn't save her. And it's, oh, I'm just going to wrap up all our affairs and I'm going to go to Europe. And I was like, all right, well, that <laughs> seems, seems weird. But all right, maybe he's just not one to show his emotions. Yeah. And then as you find out just how incredibly villainous this whole thing was. And that not only is he paying Judy to portray, you know, Madeline, like it's she like. She knows that she's part of this whole plot. That it's I, it, I what I or at least was unclear to me. Like, did she know that this was the whole plan the whole time? It seemed like she had to because she she says to him, "I went up to stop him," but she was already dead. And then what's even worse about him being this you know incredible villain who basically pulled off the perfect murder and he gets away with it in the end. There's no consequence for him. And I was I was yeah. actually reading that the studio tried to get uh, Hitchcock to have uh, like an offhanded scene where where she hears about him like getting arrested in Europe. I feel like that would have ruined it, honestly. Yeah. And Hitchcock apparently like went ahead with it and shot it, but then like convinced him like, no, this this is not a good idea. And Jimmy Stewart backed uh, backed him on a. Uh, on numerous different decisions with that because there was some battle with with you know the darkness and the violence of it and at this time uh, you're dealing with the the code era yeah um and so that uh they were playing playing with that and so when you think of you think about how dark and how much of a downer this this movie ends on um in the era that it came out is incredibly impressive right and we obviously know hitchcock is good at that especially with things like this and psycho and some of his other movies but with this one it really felt like this was a deep dive into obsession not quite in the same way as psycho which i liked obviously you can sort of see some patterns with some of his movies but this one was really just this guy made up this idea of this woman who was pretending to be a different woman in his head. And let's not forget, too, that she was also pretending to be Carlotta at times, too, right. when she would go in those sort of blackout fugue states, which obviously weren't really those things happening. She was just pretending to have them happen and pretending to basically be possessed by this dead woman. Yeah. <laughs> so... Honestly, Kim Novak does such a good job in this, given the fact that she has to play all of those different characters in those types of roles, too. It was just very impressive. And 
obviously having been more familiar with Jimmy Stewart already, I wasn't really concerned about what his performance would be like. I was like, it'll be good. You know, he'll, he'll play the role exactly as it's supposed to be played. And I think she just really impressed me with how much she had to juggle as Madeline and Judy. Yeah. She, I mean, she was, she was absolutely uh, phenomenal and, and just endlessly captivating anytime that she was on, anytime that she was on screen, you can't look away. I mean, she's, she's, she's pulling, pulling you in 10 different directions and you're just, utterly fixed on it which is it's kind of you know it's pulls you in with obviously not the creepy obsession obsession level that jimmy stewart is but it's like they handle that so well that you're just like this is you're completely in the zone of what he's seeing and his confusion and anytime you think oh i you know i kind of see like where this character might be going then she pulls you in a different direction you're like well i'm along for the ride like it's she's I, I'm not familiar with her at all. And I even like, I, I, I like pulled up the, the IMDB real quick and I was just kind of like quick scrolling and like, I'll have to look up, you know, some of her other works. Cause this, I feel like this was, this was definitely, it seems like my introduction to her. Same. And she wasn't even the, the first choice for the role. Yeah. That's wild. This movie was so good though. I had a lot of fun watching it and you know, Hitchcock is one of those directors that so many people have talked about, but I was just wanting to kind of do at least one of his movies for the podcast because, you know, I, I've talked about so many Marvel movies <laughs> and DC movies and comics in general and the shows that it's kind of nice to j- just dive into this whole other aspect of film that I enjoy, especially with this genre because obviously you you know this and a bunch of the listeners will know this that I also really like horror there are definitely some horrific things like the nightmare scene in this yeah I loved it so much and it's not that it was scary it was just the way he used sort of these animations and just playing with the format of the movie for that scene in particular I just really really liked that because we've seen stuff like creep show for instance where you have the animated stuff mm-hmm. kind of bookending the stories and it's not quite the same because you know that animation is coming and this i had no idea so it just felt like hey you really need to pay attention right now it just pulls you into the movie even more i do understand that it might take some people out of it actually but for me it definitely had the pulling in effect and I was like yes I need to know what is about to happen because that was some wild stuff yeah that's such an incredible scene and all the stuff that they do with the different uh, animations and everything is actually some of the earliest uses of CGI obviously very different than what we interpret as CGI now, but it was all done like through mechanics and computers. It is so incredibly jarring when it happens. You know, as we mentioned earlier, how when she falls off the the bell tower and there's all, all this time left in the movie, the nightmare scene is this like bombastic declaration of like, here's act two. Mm-hmm. There's a real slow burn noir feel to the entire movie leading up to this point and then 
this is like this is a tonal shift where it becomes a lot more leaning on like psychological thriller because you're watching this you're now watching this guy descent into his own madness and obsession and then the unveiling of a murder plot like it all works as one movie but you with like the tonal shift in it there's a there's a bit of two going on but it doesn't but it feels seamless through throughout like it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like the oh they're trying to do two movies and it you know it doesn't really work like no this works that scene was was incredible uh just uh, really it even just to mention the cinematography just in general is just outstanding and as you mentioned earlier the use of so many of all real locations and using the the bay area and even the mission is all real, but I guess the apparently the bell tower between starting production and filming, they the bell tower portion of it had to be torn down because of uh, I forget the I forget the reason, uh, but it was like structural. They had yeah. that had to be torn down, so they recreated it and made it even taller using uh, than than it was in real life using matte paintings. But just how everything was shot and lit in this film, I was completely mesmerized throughout and the use of a bit of 35 millimeter the use of 70 millimeter and then they're using technicolor which i am such a sucker for like i love i love anytime i see a movie and it pops up and it says technicolor or technicolor panavision and i get so excited because i know it has such a distinct fantastic look to it i just love how i love how these movies pop i was completely blown away and I, i i actually i rented like a 4k restoration uh version of it on apple okay yeah i just have the regular blu-ray set i'm sure that looks even great yeah i i have like the the lg oled tv so, oh there you go yeah so i i've put, i put a little bit of an investment into my movie and tv watching here Excellent. so even just you know the way the green of her dress popped on the screen it looked so good and as soon as I turned it on because I have been watching some older stuff and I've even watched some like 1920s shorts that Hitchcock did and they looked terrible because they have not been restored and you know they're obviously not in color at that point in time either but this looked so good (laughs) yeah the restoration that they that they did on this was was unbelievable um i i was watching on uh on my uh on my projector and so i actually i'm curious i'm curious your reaction to this scene the bookstore scene where the lighting Mm -hmm. gets super dark um i had to I had to rewind because I was watching on a projector and I thought my bulb was starting to go. <laughs> and then and then the scene like follows and the light comes back on in the bookstore and I was just like, "Wait, what the heck?" And I was just <laughs> I was like, "Let me rewind this. Did it, does it happen exactly the same or do I need to replace I have a replacement bulb and I was like, yeah. "Do I need to swap this out to finish this movie?" Um and so I was I was reading up on that scene and it's tons of people have all different uh theories on on why that why that was occurring and and that um you know there's the usage of the of the light outside and that a cloud goes over and that there's no actual lights on um i mean there's some studio lights but no like in scene lights actually on in there but it gets darkened as he's telling like the darkest part of 
the downfall of Carlotta. But it that that's that scene like threw me threw me for a loop. Probably mostly because of how I, I was watching it. But yeah, I did notice that it got darker, but it didn't really clock with me. Like I just assumed that maybe the store was about to close or something, <laughs> and that's why it was kind of darker in there because. I think just before that, doesn't he ask, like, is it still open or something? Or, like, can you take me there? And she just, like, immediately leaves. And he's like, well, hold on a second. Right. (laughs) So it kind of felt like she had some sense of urgency to get there. And I was like, is it because it's closing? Like, I couldn't really tell at that point in time because they were in her apartment, like, what time of day it was. So I probably was just like, ah, it's you know, dark in there. (laughs) Maybe he likes it that way. I don't know. Cause like there are some bookstores that you go into and there are like dark sections of the bookstore that they don't have lit up because it's like stuff they're keeping in the back and they don't want people to be confused and like think it's like part of the area where stuff's on sale. Like I've definitely been in used bookstores that are like that so i guess and the way they go down the stairs it definitely feels like this kind of like this is like a special area of the of the store yeah yeah so i think that's just kind of what it felt like to me but that's a good catch yeah i was like oh no (laughs) um yeah but but, tim i i know we could probably talk movies all day is there (laughs) anything else any final thoughts you have on vertigo because i think the nightmare scene was like the one thing i really wanted to make sure we talked about a little so for me i just i just really love this it's a fantastic film and i'm glad i watched it yeah uh honestly that that, that's that's about all i could do is just you know you know second that and that i can't believe it took me this long to finally watch this i can believe it took me this long I'm so bad at watching movies. Like this year, I've watched a lot of big things that I feel like people might have just thought I had already seen because of how much horror I've watched for the King podcast that I do and stuff. Like I didn't watch The Thing until this year. Oh, wow. I, I came to that one later in my in my life. And by this year, I mean literally like a couple months ago, if that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of movies out there. Like there's, there's, there's so a lot many of movies. movies. So, you know, I, I just, I, I always scoff at anyone who's just like, oh my God, like how, how could you not have ever seen that? It's like, because there's a lot of movies. <laughs> and also because I was a big TV person, like yeah. that was what my parents did after work. They would just watch TV. They did buy a lot of DVDs, but it was never any of this kind of stuff. You know, it was a lot of current drama suspense thriller kind of stuff and my dad would buy like the highlander movies and (laughs) so it was a bunch of stuff my dad bought that i would probably not end up being interested in aside from like star wars and with my mom it was just a lot of like drama suspense kind of stuff that at the time i was not allowed to watch (laughs) so that i just kind of didn't really get around to it and they definitely didn't have any older movies like Hitchcock or anything like that. So now that I finally just have my own money and time and, you know, watch whatever I want on my TV, it's been like this whole process of going through and watching a bunch of things that I feel like I should have already watched. Whenever you do discover different movies, it's always exciting to 
to discover something, whether whether it's something from way in the past, whether it's something new. We all go through life with all of our friends telling us, you got to watch this, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. Um, and you say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you forget. Um, but eventually <laughs> it comes around. So it's, I, I, you know, I've been, I've been, you know, seeing on your pages on the stories, like when it comes up and it's like, you're currently watching something and it's always cool. I'm like, I'm like, Oh cool. Like she's watching that. So have fun watching a ton more movies. I know I'm going to continue to do the same. And uh, I'm always, always happy to come on here uh, and talk movies. It's my favorite thing. So thanks for having me on this because, and forcing me to finally sit down and watch this absolutely incredible, iconic, classic film (laughs) of course and you know the podcast will mostly retire after the next episode but i'm i may bring it back whenever i watch something that i really want to talk about (laughs) so you know vertigo is definitely one of those kinds of movies but tim thank you again and to all of the listeners thank you for listening we will be back next week with episode 300 which will be all about aliens